You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Finishing up our series going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which has been an absolute blast. They are some of my favorite. Um, it's almost chiastic. I, I thought of this yesterday. Uh, I started the thing, and then I, I, I think I was kind of in the middle with the Cain sermon, and then, and then I get to finish it. So yes, we've got chiasms all over the place maybe with me as the sweet nugget in the center. I don't know. Can I go with that? All right, that's cool. All right, yes. All right, I'm the juicy center. All right, so we're going to start off with a quick review of where we've been. And I'm going to try to make this real fast. So this is the, this is the graphic that Rob was using last week. And uh, we were talking how there's these parallels between the Noah flood story and the curse and Adam's, the first, the first three chapters, Right. We talked how there was, there was these parallels, and it was kind of a reoccurring, it was almost a retelling of the story. You know, in, the, in the beginning, you had creation, and then God says enough, and he rests, and then there's this testing in the garden with the, the temptation from the serpent, and then Eve desires to be like God, and what we see is there's, there's a lack of self-control that leads to the tragedy there. And then with Noah's story, we see destruction, which is kind of the flip side of the coin. It's kind of the same thing as creation. It's a recreation of the earth. And God says enough, it's an, he knows when to stop destroying, he doesn't completely annihilate everything, and he manages to partner with Noah, he brings Noah into this, he partners with him, and he saves and restarts creation here. And then we see a testing where the, we talked about this last week, and Ham kind of does something that really agitates his father. And then, uh, then there's this curse that Noah brings down because he wants to, he, and he curses like God. And then at the core of this is he doesn't know how to, he, he curses like God, and it's just way out of control, and there's a lack of self-control. Now, if we see that there's these parallels between Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and f- uh, 6, 7, uh, 7, 8, 9, Noah, wherever those fall in the, in, the, in the skipping the genealogy, it would make sense that maybe today, talking about Babel in chapter 11, we would see some parallels between that and the Cain story. So let's flip to that next graphic real quick. And lo and behold, I tried, I really tried to do this, and it started to look more like a spider, like it looked like a spider web, so I, I kind of simplified it down, because there's just a lot of connections. But what we're going to see today is that with the Cain story, sin grew from being just in an individual, to now it's, it's spread to a whole family, and it's, it's impacting this whole family. And then there's a lack of self-control. Cain kills his brother, and then there's an exile. He's sent to be a wanderer, a vagabond in the land, right? And what we're going to see with Babel, I submit, that it goes from being sin is covering the whole world to now sin is organizing, it's growing, it's developing, and there's a lack of self-control probably that we're going to see, and then there's this scattered thing, which sounds a whole lot like exile. Did I spell exile wrong? That certainly looks wrong. Yeah, for sure. Wow, shortcoming for sure. All right, anyway, moving on. Go set. Actually, all right, moving it onwards and forwards. Let's get into let's get into Genesis eleven here. And we remember we're trying to read this with the the through the lens, the view of 
the Hebrews that had just been liberated from Egypt, right? These slaves that had just been set free, and they're hearing this story for the first time. So we're going to put on our, our Hebrew goggles and uh, listen to this story. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth." And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, because he couldn't see it where he was at, well, that's a little weird, uh, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, if we're listening to this, it's really hard to hear this in the English. But you can kind of catch just a little bit at the end of this where it says that phrase, over all of the earth. We hear this over and over. It's kind of, it's, he says this a lot. Like, this is a reoccurring, like, why, why are we hearing this so much? Well, if you've been around for the rest of these sermons, then we're probably going to start to catch on that if there's these reoccurring patterns, there might be a chiasm. And this one uh, is a tricky one to find. I'm not very good at finding it. I had to rely on smarter people than me to find it. And so we're going to talk about it in footnotes probably a little bit. It involves Hebrew consonants and a lot of phlegm. We might talk about that a little bit. It'll be a good time if you're into that. But just take my word for it. There's a chiasm. And at the center of this is there in verse 4, the second half of it, where it says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So this, this apparently... This lest we be displaced over the face of the whole earth is kind of at the core of this story. It's, it's, it's this point that we, we should come back to. And that seems a little strange. It seems a little odd. So I want to focus in on verse 3, verse 4, and then 5 through 8 real quick here. Let's focus on these verses and see if maybe we can pull something out of this. So in verse 3, we get, uh, let's hear, they said to one another, come let us make bricks. So we get the, this is the invention of the brick, like bad thing. Okay, I would say that it probably reminds me a little bit of in Genesis 4, where Cain is a farmer, like farming is a new developing technology at the time, you could maybe draw a parallel. But how often, how often do we get new technology that can do all sorts of really cool things? You know, my phone can do all sorts of really cool things, but it can also be really terrible, and it can lead people into all sorts of horrible things, and we get texting and driving, and you know how terrible phones are. We all love, hate them, right? And what we see in verse 4 <clears throat> kind of points us to this. This new tech runs wild, this brick. This creation of the brick goes a little bit crazy. Because it says, then they said. This, this then they said indicates that there's a passing of time. So the brick is created, then they said. Like, brick is created, time passes, then they said. 
It develops. They lose their control over this. They, their desire to build and create starts to go nuts, which might or might not remind us a little bit of Cain with his desire to procure, to, to create, with Eve, her desire to be more like God, right? This desire that somehow something's not enough, right? And there's something apparently wrong about this, this desire that they have in four to build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, <clears throat> okay, and let us make a name for ourselves. I don't know about you, but when I read that, that's the part that strikes me as like, hmm, that seems a little wrong. You know, there's that uh, pride cometh before the fall. Everybody tells me that. I always forget it. I've learned that lesson so many times, so many times. Building, uh, here's what I think. This is, the, this is the Logan Daily Theory. Building this huge structure. Now, remember, we're talking... Pretend you're a Hebrew hearing this. Just, you just came out of Egypt where you were maybe building huge structures from bricks. And so when, when you're in the ancient world, if you're going to build a huge structure, what is that going to involve? It's going to involve slavery. So I think that part of what is going wrong with this, it's not the brick that's the issue. It's the fact that they're oppressing people probably to build this huge city and they're going to make a name for themselves probably on the backs of other people. Pretty good guess. Not a far leap to make, right? So God comes down and in verse 5 through 8, he responds to this, right? He looks at it. He says, man, they are one people, they're united, they all speak the same language, they're just, they're, nothing's going to be impossible for them, which sounds like, that kind of sounds like a good thing, right? Like, I can do all things, all things through Christ who strengthens me, like, nothing's impossible, right? That sounds pretty good. But apparently this is an issue. And so God, God he, he institutes a new game plan, okay? And this new game plan looks a little bit like this. I'm going to scramble all your languages so that you can't communicate anymore and you can't build this thing. And what that's going to do is I've scrambled your languages so you're going to spread out and you can't settle down. You can't settle. You have to work to be understood now. You have to go, you're going to, you're, because let's be honest, when it's really, have you ever tried to talk with somebody who doesn't speak the same language as you? That's incredibly frustrating. Like, I imagine talking with babies. They don't speak the same language as me. I can't understand them. We can't communicate. That's frustrating on both of our parts, right? Most of the time, you're going to probably go try to find people that you can communicate with. That's my guess. Once again, probably not a far logic leap. So God institutes this plan of you can't settle because you're going to have to work to be understood, and so they're going to disperse out into the land. Okay, because what, what's happened is, is it, it's this concept of they're, they're settling down farther away from God, because they're settling in the east. They're settling away from God. We've talked about this before, of when the Garden, the garden of Eden happens, and then the Adam and Eve leave, and they go east. And then Cain kills Abel, and he goes further east. And then when Noah happens, God brings Noah back west. And there's this reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. We talked about it in Jonah also, where if you are moving east, you are you're moving away from God. And if you're moving west, you're moving towards God, right? This is a, this is a theme that the, the authors use, a literary tool. 
So settling in the east, God does not want them to settle away from him. God wants to partner with people who are moving. We see this in a couple of in, in a ways. I don't, I'm not sure when we're going to get to it, but we're going to get to it where we start talking about Abraham. Okay? <clears throat> Sometime down the road, we'll talk about him, and he, he's constantly moving, and God wants to partner with him, right? Jacob is full of chutzpah, and he's constantly moving. Like, that dude just is running away from everything, and God partners with him. Joseph is, is moving constantly, and God partners with him. God partners with people who don't settle. Now, settle does not necessarily mean, don't hear, don't hear me say, like, you shouldn't have a house or you shouldn't live in the same town that you were born in or something. There's nothing wrong with that. Settle here is a concept of, I've just become complacent. I'm just, I'm okay with this. Because I think God wants to pull us back to the garden, I think God wants his people, God wants the world to understand something, and he wants to move us back towards the garden and back towards his intended purpose, right? He wants to bring us back to that place where we can take from the tree of life. He wants to bring us back into communion with him. And I think that's what we see in this story. God doesn't want them to settle far away. He doesn't want them to make a name for themselves because they're supposed to be partnering with him. And they're the junior partner, not the senior partner, because he's God. And you probably shouldn't make a name for yourself if you're the junior partner. I'm not an expert on that, but it uh, seems logical. Uh, Dave, have you ever had a partner at your dentist office? No. Okay. So you made a name for yourself at the dentist office because you're the senior partner. No, uh, kind of, maybe sort of. Uh, <laughs> you didn't like that. <laughs> Ruth's the senior partner. I got you. Okay. All right. All right. Anyway. <laughs> God wants to partner with us, though, and he doesn't want us to settle. He wants to move us back to the garden. He wants to bring us back into communion with him, back into fellowship, back into relationship. This is the narrative that we keep seeing throughout all of Genesis. Now, here's the thing. You can't settle until you learn to say enough. Because we talked about that reoccurring theme, and whenever the testing occurs, what was the downfall of this? was the downfall with Eve? She couldn't say enough. She wasn't okay with God's plan, with God's intention for her life. She wanted more. She wanted to be like God. Even though she already had the image of God, she wanted to be more, more like God, right? With Cain, he wanted to acquire more, and Abel was a danger to how he could acquire things and what he could produce, and, and, and he struggled with that, and he couldn't show the self-control to say that what God is going to provide for me is enough, and it leads to tragedy, right? We see this with Noah when he curses his grandson. He doesn't know when to say enough as far as dealing out judgment. He loses, there's no self-control. I think that the full story of Genesis 1 through 11 tells us a little bit about what it means to say enough. So I'm going to throw up this graphic here. Now, I borrowed this fairly liberally, from my buddy Marty. Um, I simplified it down a little bit. He's got a bunch of extra stuff on his. And I also put it in Mission Ridge Red, which is the superior color. Um, there is no better color on the face of the earth. Uh, it is so good. It is so good. Because I can see that color, and I don't get it mixed up with many other things. Anyway, right? I'm all about that, <laughs> me and Brandon. Anyway, so we got, these, uh, we got these names here, and then the emojis, because there's, you know, 
the genealogy bits where, let's be honest, you sleep through those. Those aren't important, right? Uh, so this is, these are the patterns that we see throughout Genesis, right? 1 through 11 here. There's constantly these little problems in the story or things that grab our attention because they're a little weird, right? Uh, in, in the first, in Genesis 1, it was the, the days are kind of wonky and there's light before there's, there's stars and, and, then, and then all of a sudden, like, man pops in at the end, but then Genesis 2 happens and now we're getting the creation of man again and that's, that's a little weird. And, and in Genesis 3, there was definitely some problems because there was a walking, talking snake and that was really strange, Right? And there was, there was, there's these problems that keep drawing our attention to things. And then we saw chiasms after chiasm after chiasm. They're all over the place. They're scattered. Uh, my favorite is in the Noah, the flood story with Noah's Ark. There's actually chiasms inside of chiasms. <clears throat> it's like a chiasmception. A chiception? I don't know, something like that. Um, and then there's this reoccurring, God said it was good. And then there's tragedy. And creation is pulled apart, and there, there's, there's discord, and there's tragedy, right? And then God brings it back together, and it's good. And then there's tragedy, and there's tragedy. There's these reoccurring themes. God says he knows when to stop, and then he rests. But then in the next two stories, we see Eve and Adam and Cain, they all become obsessed with what they can attain and what they need and what they want, and not, they're, they're not okay. They mistrust what God has said their lives need to be. Right? We see the same thing in the back half of 1 through 11. Now, if we're seeing this and we see these patterns, there should be a little, a little warning light for those of us that have been seeing the chiasm thing for a while now. For those of you that maybe might be new with this, a chiasm is a literary tool that Eastern teachers will use to make a point. A chiasm is a, a way of burying some sort of truth, and it's a pattern, either A, B, C, D, C, B, A, and the, it you know, kind of ramps into the middle, or a repeated one that goes A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. So that means that the Noah's Ark one is a chiasm in a chiasm in a chiasm, which is really cool. <laughs> I just get a little excited about that, right? So... What, is, what does this mean about, like, what, what's, what's the juicy center here? Now, this type of, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to be real vulnerable. This A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, this type of chiasm drives me bonkers. Like, the ones that point to the center, and they're, like, real clean, and it's like A and A and B and B and C and C and D, right there, there's the middle. These ones drive me nuts. I've had, Marty's explained it to me. I think Rob explained it to me. I've had so many people try to explain this to me. It drives me nuts. So I'm going to rely on Marty. Uh, my good buddy Marty has informed me that the center of everything in Genesis is chapter 5, tw verses 28 and 29, which falls in the genealogy that we skipped over. We kind of pulled a fast one on you, right? Because we all sleep through. There's nothing important in the genealogies. Those aren't, they're just a bunch of names. We can skip those and get to the good stuff. Apparently not. Yikes. So this verse, this verse says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Or if we wanted to put a little phlegm, Noah, right? Like, Ooh, clear your throat. It's real good, right? Saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, I care, cursed the ground, 
This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Side note, if my dad had said that at my birth, the pressure would have been excruciating. Like, my dad was already, like, there were some high expectations. Bless his heart. Both of my parents, pretty high achievers. There were some high expectations. This would have raised the bar to probably un- unbelievable levels, and I would have just, I would have curled up in a fetal position and cried a lot, probably. Like, this is a huge calling on Noah's life. This is a big thing. Noah's name literally means he rests. At the center of Genesis 1 through 11, this whole narrative of the creation of the world and how humanity comes into existence and how humanity ends up in where it's at, right? This whole narrative, at the center of it, is this one character, Noah, whose name means he rests. I submit that the ability to rest hinges upon being able to say enough and to trust God's provision. And I feel pretty good about that because I can speak as a workaholic who is terrible at resting. The irony of me preaching this week on this subject is very strong. Like, I had, I, I completely overload myself all the time because I struggle thinking that, you know, I'm going to be enough. What I'm doing is enough. I have to do more. I can always do more. I can always do better, right? And it's a struggle to rest. It's a struggle for me to believe that. And so when I look at these stories of how they, they enter this test of like, are they going to believe that God, what God tells them is going to be enough? What God's purpose for their life, God's call for their life is going to be enough? They enter into this, and I ask myself, am I going to do any differently? Do I currently do any differently? And that nails me to the wall. That's rough. I have to be able to say enough and trust God's provision. Now, how does this tie back to Babel? Well, Being scattered doesn't sound like rest. But being scattered and having to learn to understand other people, to learn this lesson, to understand who they are, because every single one of us carries a little bit of the image of God in each other. And it's through interacting, it's through relationship with other people that I gain, a bigger, I gain a better picture of who God is. I gain a, because if you look at a bunch of art, you start to pick up who the artist is. You start to pick up what sort of things he creates, and you can start to develop a profile for who that artist is. So if I want to understand God, I need to look at his creations, and I need to understand his creations. So when God scatters the people, he's saying, like, this is a big mixer, and y'all need to get to know each other now right? And we're not here to make our name great. That's what I get from Babel. Right at the end of this, it's real clear. Like, we're not here to make our name great. I think that's the implication for today, that I would, I would start from here. I would say, we are not here to make our name great. I am not here to make my name great. 
We are not here to make Mission Ridge's name great. We're here to partner with God in bringing the world back to that Genesis 1, back to creation, back to Tov Mayod, very good. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. Not to make our name great, to make God's name great. It's his will be done, not mine. Now, how do we do that? It's a great question. I think Jesus gave us the marching orders. So in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, this is the Great Commission. We've heard this probably quite a few times if you've been in church. Gets, gets gone over a couple of times. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. <clears throat> Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have to go. This is part of the command. We can't be stagnant. We can't settle. We have to go. This carries through into Jesus. God doesn't want us to settle away from him. He wants us to move and continue moving. Imagine a boat, right? Anybody been in a boat before? If it's just sitting there on the water, I can turn the wheel all I want. It's not going to go anywhere. Like, if you're in a boat and you put a kid in the steering wheel, it's fine as long as they don't hit the forward throttle. They can just sit there and steer all day long, happy and content. My grandparents used to do that with me. Then I found the horn. They liked that. God needs us to be moving so he can steer us. He can direct our paths. It's really hard to direct somebody if they're not moving. You can tell them to go somewhere, but they're still not going to go anywhere. But if I just take one step forward, now he can start correcting the path and bringing me back to where he wants me to be. So for a tangible like step, something that we could actually do, a call to action, if you will, I would say, as you go, make disciples. That's what Jesus is telling us. So it's, it's assumed that you're going to go, and as you do that, we're going to make disciples. <laughs> and we see this modeled by Jesus. Um, Rob, move to communion here in a second if you want to start passing that out with whoever, Whom, whomever. Uh, Jesus is always on the move, though. We look at his, at his ministry, and you, you read through the Gospels. Jesus is always, always moving with his disciples. Like They are all over the place, up and down that little country, walking everywhere. But I want to look at Matthew Chapter 4, 23 and 25, Rob and me were talking this week, and this was a perfect example of this. This is Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry, uh, and right, at the, right at the front tippy tip of it. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his 
fame spread throughout all of Syria. Like that's, that's quite a ways. Started with the Galilee, then it spread out to Syria. And they brought him all of the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pain, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus is he's going places and he's picking up people as he goes. He's running into people. He's coming, he's coming to the, the I, I, don't, I don't think you could find a single person that Jesus healed or taught or anything like that, that he didn't understand on some level, that he didn't take some time to understand, right? Like, I, I would challenge you to find one that he doesn't understand on some level. Think about the, the paralyzed man coming through the ceiling. He doesn't just like fix his legs right off the bat. No, he understands him so well that he actually uses it as a teaching point to talk about sin and forgives the guy's sin. And then, oh, and by the way, you can walk now. Like, he understands him incredibly well. I think that's at the core of this. Discipleship begins with understanding. If I'm going to disciple somebody, I have to understand them. If I'm going to understand them, I have to learn to speak their language. Now, I just know from the relationships that I have with people, if I understand what makes them tick, I can understand what they're saying better. And we have a whole lot less miscommunications. I imagine that those of you that are married uh, or have been married probably understand this better than I do, right? Rob, am, am I right that if you understand Christy, how, Christy speaks differently than you? Christy and Rob, do you, have you figured out what he's saying yet? Do you have the decoder ring? Can I get a copy? It's fine. Um, I'm still working on it. Yikes. We have to learn to speak the languages of other people. This is what I get from Babel. God wants us to understand people. In order to do that, we have to be in relationship with them. And it's this, it cycles on itself because the more I understand somebody, the more I understand Isaiah and what makes him tick, the better we get along and the better friends we become. And then I understand that he wants to go to Wheat Montana, not IHOP for breakfast. Am I right? Oh, he's all over that. And he doesn't want to put butter on his cinnamon roll. And he thinks he can eat an entire cinnamon roll, but then I eat the other half of it. Yes! I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, we need to go, we need to move, and we need to learn to speak the languages of other people. And part of that is learning to stop and understand who God created us to be. That's the part of this that nails me to the wall, is I have to learn to slow down to listen to other people. Because it's really hard to understand what Josh is telling me if I'm constantly going and not listening to him. I don't know about that. He yells really loud, though, so I can be running around, move ways away. That's what I think this word is telling us today. And I think, I think as we transition to communion here, I think that's what we see with Christ. Because we look at communion, and Christ is literally giving us a picture of who he is, who he's willing to be, who he's, he's willing to be this sacrifice for us, this body and the blood for us, right? 
And he uses this line that no greater love than to lay down uh, his life for his friends, right? There's the, 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 friend, the friend line, which I was thinking about this morning as I was driving in, and the song Good Grace came on, and in the second verse, it's got this line where it says, uh, Jesus, friend forever. And I always thought that was a little cheesy, a little corny, like, oh, that's just kind of the, like, or Jesus is a friend of mine, right? Like, that's the worst song ever. I'm sorry if you love that, but I, that song drives me nuts. But, like, it's, it's not cheesy, Jesus is calling us his friend, saying he's laying down his life for us. I was like, oh, man, I've been hearing that for a while, and that never clicked. I'm thick as a brick and bitumum and mortar or something like that. My goodness. So we see with communion, Jesus giving us this example of who he is. So on the night that he was betrayed... He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, eat this, partake of this, remember me when you eat this. Let's remember him. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. Let's remember him. Lord, I thank you that we could gather here today and we could worship you. That we could learn of your truth. That we could learn your story. That we could get to know your intention for our lives a little better. I pray that as we move into this last song, you would continue to be working in our hearts. Help us to feel your presence here today. Help us to feel your love. How incredibly strong that love is for us. We love you. We praise you. Praise in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side. Get louder. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Anyway, a quick update on the announcements. I believe, Ruth, we're pushing women's ministry back off till next month, till April. So no women's ministry next Okay, all right. It seems like all of you have the memo. Why did I announce that? All right. Oh, well. All right, for all the guys that weren't in that meeting, no women's ministry next week. Oh my goodness, all right. Anyway, all right, all right, all right.